I hope you'll plan to be back tonight. God's doing a work here. I'm just excited to be a part of it. Pastor's been telling me about uh, how the Lord brought him here and how the Lord's working. And I'm just so excited that uh, I get to be a part of it today. And I want to encourage you to be a part of it tonight. Don't let anything keep you or inhibit you from coming to the service tonight. I believe God is doing and wants to do a, a major work in our hearts. Romans chapter 1 is where your Bibles are open. Would you, if you're able, stand out of respect for God's word? Romans chapter 1, I draw your attention to Romans chapter 1 and verse number 14. Romans 1 and verse number 14. Paul, under inspiration, writes these words, I am debtor both to the Jew, Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Father, I pray that you'd capture our attention now for the... Several years ago, of North... year hearts and spend some time together and almost all of us were out there together as a family but as we were out there on the coast of North Carolina we noticed that there was a storm brewing and it was moving towards our town of Shelby. It wasn't just a localized storm, it was an ice storm that was going to cover North Carolina, the western part and even the central. It was going to cover Georgia, South Carolina, Tennessee and even up into Virginia. So it covered a five state area. It was 2002 when this ice storm hit, and it was massive. In fact, we did cut our vacation short, and we went home early. I got my fifth-wheel trailer, which was the only place that we lived at the time, parked in my mom and dad's driveway, and I had a generator, so we all packed into our little fifth-wheel trailer, and we, we, uh, just, we, we had some nice, cozy warmth, I can tell you. And so I was glad that we were able to do that because the ice storm cut power out. It cut power out for Shelby. It cut power out for surrounding towns all the way to Raleigh. As a matter of fact, in North Carolina alone, there were estimates that 200,000 people were without power for two or three days. Now, there's something worse than a physical power outage that causes cold to creep in. And that is a spiritual power outage when cold creeps in and sends warmth a-running. This morning, for a few moments, I want to preach to you on the subject, power outage. It is very essential that every Christian know and experience and be plugged into the power of God. Amen. It's very essential for every person to know, experience, and be plugged into the power of God. And if your life has a power outage this morning, it can be remedied through the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Notice, please, what he says in verse number 16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
Now, I want to give us four connectors that will help us put the power back on in our lives. The first connector is here in Romans 1 and verse 16. It is what I call the connection of the gospel. There is the gospel. In other words, I want you to see this connector as it is plainly put in the Bible. It is the connector called salvation. Salvation. Would you say that with me this morning? Salvation. Would you say it again, please? Salvation. Number one is the connector called salvation. Now, once this connector is put in place, it doesn't come undone. If you will, for those of you that are electricians and know how it works, it's hardwired right into the box and right to the pole. It is essential that you have this connector called salvation in your life. If you don't have salvation, then you don't have the power of God. You can try the other three that I'll explain, but if you don't have the power of salvation and the gospel, if you've never received Jesus as your Savior, then you will not have power to the other three outlets, if you please. So I want to ask you, have you been saved? Has there been a time in your life when you have made the choice to turn from your sin and anything that you've trusted in to trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone? Have you been saved? I'm asking, have you believed the gospel? Another way I could say it is, have you been born again? Now you have one birth that gets you into this life. You need to experience the second birth to get you into the next life. It's not good enough just to have one birth. People ask George Whitfield, the great preacher of the first great awakening, why is it that everywhere you go, you keep preaching and you keep saying, you must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. He said, because you must be born again. Yes. And the truth is, if you're here this morning and you haven't been born again, that means born from above. That means there's been a time in your life when you, by faith, have received the gift of eternal life from the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to be born again today. Hey. And the wonderful thing about it is, you can be born again today. I was talking to someone on the plane here, and they said, born again, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean reincarnation. Some people teach that, but that's not what it means. It doesn't mean turning over a new leaf. You know it's January of the new year, and so I'm going to try a little harder and do a little better and make a few resolutions and have a little list. That's not what it means, turning over a new leaf. It doesn't mean I'm, um, I'm joining up with a church. It doesn't mean that. Born again in the Bible and church membership are not the same. It doesn't mean baptism. The person I was speaking to on the plane had been brought up in a religion that, that she was taught that's what born again means. As a matter of fact, on the flight from Phoenix to Dallas, I sat next to a professor at Brigham Young University, and, and he thought that, and he was thoroughly convinced of that, and he was trying to convince me of it. I, I don't think he, he fully realized I was a Baptist preacher and wasn't having it. But anyway, uh, uh, we, he, he, he thought that when you're baptized, you're born again. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that your sins are washed away uh, by being baptized. The Bible teaches your sins are washed away by being born again. Amen. Now, here's the great problem. Every one of us is a sinner. It doesn't matter who we are or how good we are or how rich or knowledgeable we are or not. We're all sinners. Yeah. Everybody in this world, everybody in this room, no matter their skin color, no matter their religious background, no matter their language or dialect, no matter their social status, whether they're royalty or not, we all have three things in common. One, we've all sinned against God. That is, we've broken his law. Yes. Two, we're all going to die. Three, we're all going to stand before God. Mm. 
And if when we die and we stand before God, our sin problem hasn't been dealt with, in other words, we haven't been saved from it, we haven't been born again into the family of God, it's not going to bode well for us at the judgment. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die and after this, the judgment. Paul said to be absent with the body, we're present with the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, the truth is, is that the moment you die... You're going to give an account to Almighty God. Young people, look right up at me. I want to say this to you. It is essential that you're born again. If you've not been born again, you need to be today. Being a church member of this church or any church won't get you to heaven. That's right. Being baptized in this church or any church or any way won't get you to heaven. Right. Uh, the only thing that will get you to heaven and get you hardwired in to the power of God is to be saved. You said, preacher, how do I get saved? All right. First, you acknowledge that you're a sinner. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. We're all gone out of the way. Together we become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. You say, none? None. I was preaching in Charlotte, North Carolina, or near there, and a young man met me after the service about halfway down in the aisle, and he said, thanks for singing tonight, and thanks for bringing your singing group in. It was really good. I said, well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. He's, he was 12 years old. He said, uh, pray for me, I'm not saved. I said, what? I said, well, let's sit down and talk about this right now. I said, saved? I said, what do you mean, saved? I said, what do you need to be saved from? He said, well, I don't know, but I'm not. And everybody tells me I need to be, so I need to be saved. I said, well, are you a sinner? Oh, no, he said, I'm not a sinner. He said, my brother is, but I'm not. <laughs> now, folks, of course we would expect that from a child, but sometimes we're like that. Yeah. Are you a sinner? Oh, oh, no, 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 I'm not. The terrorists are, but I'm not. Are you a sinner? Oh, no, no, I'm not. The child molesters are, but I'm not. Are you a sinner? Oh, no, no. Those people that kept their kids all chained up in, in, in a house out in California, they are, but I'm not. And our problem is we're comparing ourselves to the wrong person. When you compare yourself to the terrorist or to the child molester, or to the people that hold their kids captive in chains and don't feed them, of course you're going to look pretty good. You know, my wife has me on a diet, and so it's, a, it's really a struggle. You all pray for me. I'm trying to lose a few pounds and, and get back to my high school figure and get to my boxing weight. But, but, you know, the other day I saw a program on television I don't even hardly remember what it's called. My Wonderful, Fabulous, Big Fat Life or something like that. Anybody ever seen that program or something like it? There was somebody on there that was like eight or 900 pounds. Now, I really want my wife to watch that show. <laughs> because compared to them, I'm not so bad. <laughs> you see? And you know, that's the way we think a lot. We think compared to this guy... I'm looking horizontally or, or this way. I'm not so bad. But when you look vertically and compare yourself to Jesus Christ, I'm not so good. And neither are you. And can I say what Jesus said? Jesus said, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, we used to preach you what kind of righteousness did they have? Outwardly, it was pretty good. They fasted twice a week. Do you fast twice a week? They gave tithes of everything they possessed. Do you give tithes of everything you possess? 
But Jesus said they're not the standard. In order for you to get into heaven, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. We said, preacher, how's that possible? All right, you've got to be as righteous as Jesus. That's impossible. Well, I'm glad you know that. Because there is some righteousness that we claim. We would think of ourselves as good because we give to charity. We would think of ourselves as good because we go to church. We would think of ourselves as good because we try to be good moms and good dads. We try to be good, fairly good sons and daughters. We try to help people across the street and maybe, you know, drop a few cents in the McDonald's charity every once in a while when we get a, a, a McMeal. But, but God says something very plainly. He says that our bad is bad. How many of you would have a hard time understanding that? Preacher, I'm having a hard time understanding that our bad is bad. You say, no, preacher, I, I understand that. My lying, my cheating, my stealing, my lust, my pride, my meanness, it's bad. But God goes something further and he says this. That our good is bad. You say, what? Yes. God says that our good is bad. You say, preacher, what do you mean? Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. You say, what? Yes. You see, compared to his righteousness and the standard of righteousness that is necessary to get into heaven, not only is our bad bad, but our good is bad. You see, sometimes when we do righteousness, we do it with a wrong motive, and it makes it bad. For instance, we might do good to counter out our bad or do good so that people won't look at our bad, and that's deception. Or we might do good, I, I remember... When 9-11 happened, Yasser Arafat, the head of the P Palestinian Liberation Organization, which is a terrorist group, on 9-11 went to the local blood bank and gave blood. And it disgusted me. Because here is a man that promotes everything that was done on 9-11 in America in a terrible way, and he's acting like he wants to help. When in fact he's spent his whole life encouraging that kind of nonsense. Doing good to cover our bad. Sometimes we do good to be seen of men. And that's pride. And even if we do good with the right motive, God says, compared to the righteousness of Christ, it's filthy rags. Filthy rags. Do you want to know what God thinks of our good? Our filthy rags are our good. And this is what he says. He says that it's like the kind of rags that would be wrapped around, excuse me, a pussing, oozing, infected, leprous sore and put in a trash can. He said, preacher, if my righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, and I'm no even close to them, and my good that I do do that's not even close to the Pharisees is filthy rags, and I can't get into heaven unless I have his righteousness, I'm in trouble. That's exactly what I want you to see. Yes. Yes. That you are in trouble, and I am in trouble, without Jesus Christ. You see, just imagine that you've got a letter certified from the country of England or Britain, and it has requested your presence, ladies, at the royal palace. 
a meeting with the queen. Now, how many of you ladies would, would like just to go to the palace? You say, I would. Amen. <laughs> Amen. I got one honest lady in the bunch. How many, how many of you ladies, when I even brought up that scenario, immediately, immediately in your mind, you were just going through your closet to think of what you might wear or what you might not wear? Isn't that right? And, and you were thinking, this is good. I'm glad the preacher brought this up because this will give me an opportunity to plead with my husband to buy that very expensive dress I've been wanting for a while. Now watch. You would not go to see the queen in your work around the garden clothes. It's not good enough. But my friend, someday you're going to stand before someone far more important than the queen. It's King Jesus. And you better have righteousness that's satisfactory to him. You say, where do I get it? From him. You see, Paul was a Pharisee, and he said, I want to be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law but the righteousness which is of God by faith. You see, you can go to God in your own righteousness, in your own good deeds, in your own religion, or your own ritual, watch me, and it's not good enough. But what you need to do is come accepting the finished work of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And when you do say, Lord, my righteous rags are not good enough, please forgive me of my sin and my wrongdoing, I trust in you. And the moment you do, young man, look right up at me. The moment you do, the moment you do, he takes away your self-righteous rags and he gives you his perfect robe of righteousness. Immediately, positionally, you're accepted in the beloved. You know what that's called? Power. The power of salvation. God forbid that this church would ever stop preaching the gospel. And God forbid, and I pray that if it happens, that this church will shut down and be sold to a business if this church ever stops preaching the gospel. Because the gospel is the lifeblood of the church. And I want to say to you, if you're here this morning and you have never received the gospel or believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. In other words, you've never been saved or born again. There's never been a time when you've said, Lord, please, please forgive me of my sin. I accept your gift of eternal life. Save my soul. Today you can be if you'll simply call upon Christ. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now watch, the first connector is what I call the connection of salvation. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 6. Please, 2 Corinthians 6. I want to give you the second connector that I find in the Word of God. 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6 in the Word of God. The Bible is speaking to a church and he's saying in verse number 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial, and what part or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, Who is the temple? These believers, watch this, individually and collectively. 
The temple was the place where God chose to put his presence. The temple is the place where God was worshipped. The temple was where sacrifices were made. And the Bible says, by him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto his name. And we offer those sacrifices in the body and individually before the Lord. So he says, he says, ye are the temple of God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, watch verse number 17, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you and will be a father unto you and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Watch verse verse 1 of chapter 7. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, number two is what I call the connector of sanctification. The connector of sanctification. Would you say that with me? The connector of sanctification. Would you say it again? The connector of sanctification. Now, sanctification is a big, big money syllable word, but it just means set apart for usefulness. Set apart for usefulness. And God wants to set your life aside and my life aside for usefulness, but we must be clean. That's the whole idea. Now, sometimes, Pastor, I'm concerned that when a new believer gets saved, we, we are careful not to broach certain subjects. And we ought to show some discretion. But one of the subjects we wait until the very, very, very last to talk and maybe we just let somebody else talk to them about, is this matter of personal separation and holiness. That shouldn't be the last thing we talk to them about. That should be one of the first things we talk to them about. Now, there's no use in talking to an unbeliever about this because an unbeliever doesn't understand. Even if he did try to live a holy life, he's just going to die and go to hell clean. That's it. But we need to talk to believers about it. We as believers need to talk about it. We need to welcome it when the preacher talks about it. He's speaking to the church here in 2 Corinthians 6, and he says, come out from among them and be a separate. In other words, a believer should not yoke together with an unbeliever in a task or in a covenant. Let me say that again. A believer should not yoke together with an unbeliever specifically in a covenant or a combining commitment. A a believer should not marry an unbeliever. Young people, look at me. You shouldn't even date an unbeliever. That's wrong. That's sin. You know why? Because when you date, it's a potential mate. You shouldn't date an unbeliever. Now, that's no slam on the unbeliever. It's just a violation of this principle. Can I say to you, sir, you as a businessman should not yoke together in a covenant-binding legal agreement with an unsaved businessman if you're saved. That's a Bible principle. Why? Because an unsaved person is going to look at legal things look at ethical things, look at matters of integrity differently than an unbeliever. Or an unbeliever is going to look at it differently than a believer. They're not going to think about things in an honest, forthright way. An unbeliever is not going to be concerned about their testimony in the community. But a believer is. And so when you get together in that binding relationship, something happens that is against the word of God. Let me say this. A preacher should not get together in a binding relationship with an unbelieving preacher to quote unquote spread the gospel. Look here. There are some preachers I will work with and preachers by the grace of God I will not work with. Doesn't matter if they're a preacher. Doesn't matter if they're a pastor. Doesn't matter if they have a church. Doesn't matter if they profess 
something about the Bible or Jesus, if they're not saved and they've never believed the gospel, it is a violation of Bible principle for me to work together in harness or in yoke with them. And that's exactly what he's saying here. He says, come out from among them and be separate. And the greater principle of 2 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 7 is this. Be holy. Be pure. Now, God wants to set you aside for usefulness, and he wants to set me aside for usefulness in his work, but he's only going to choose what's holy. How about it when you got up this morning? You looked around, and you said, I'm going to choose something to wear. Did you choose something from your closet or your dresser or the laundry hamper? Well, you said, preacher, of course. Of course I went to the closet. I'm, I, of course, I went to the dresser. I'm not going to go to the dirty laundry clothes hamper to, to choose. I mean, I'd just be stinky all day. Of course. And that's exactly the principle. When you laid aside your clothes on the bed and you said, okay, I figured out what I'm going to wear, you selected something that was clean. And God wants to do that with your life and mine. Now, make no mistake about it. God will use as examples both those are unclean and clean. But he's not going to use an unclean person for a good example. He's gonna, he may say, this is the wrong way. This is the wrong way to live. This is the wrong way to behave. This is the wrong way to go. But if you want God to use you in a good way, Christian, then you're going to have to be clean. Are you clean? Look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1. He says, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. He's saying, be pure. That shouldn't be a hard concept. We tell our children, wash your hands before dinner. We tell our, we tell our surgeons, watch your, wash your hands before you cut on me. We tell the chef, wash your hands before you prepare my meal. Why is it so hard for Christians to understand it's vital to wash their hands? And he says, cleanse your hands, ye sinners, James chapter 4, and purify your hearts. You double-minded. In other words, God's not just interested in clean hands. He's interested also in clean hearts. In the book of Psalms, he says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? He that has clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. You know what God's saying? He's saying, you need to be sanctified. It ought to be the purpose, it ought to be the passion of this church, from this pulpit to the pews in this place, that we be pure. That we be pure personally. That we pray for each other. Hey, will you pray for me, brother? I've been struggling with this particular area in my life. I want to be pure. Hey, would you pray for me? Uh, friend, I, I really need to be pure and I'm struggling in this area. Would you give me some verses that would be a help? Now, anybody that pretends that they're pure all the time is a fraud. Yes. Because we're just not. We struggle. We bump into this world's sin. We bump into our own sin. We sometimes jump into it, not just bump into it. And we need help from God. The pastor's not perfect. His wife and family aren't perfect, and they'd be the first ones to admit it. And guess what? Neither are you. So before we go pointing fingers at everybody else about their imperfections, we need to look in the mirror. I'm convinced, Pastor, there are some Christians that don't even own a mirror. And they haven't looked in a mirror in a long time. I want to ask, are you pure? Question number three is not only the question or the connection of salvation, which is hardwired right into the box. The second connector is the connector of sanctification. But then I want you to take your Bible, turn back to Luke chapter 11, would you? Luke chapter 11 in the Word of God. 
Luke chapter 11 in the scripture. Luke chapter 11. Notice what the Bible says in Luke chapter 11. He's speaking here about the prayers that we offer. His disciples come to him in verse number 1 and 2, and they want to learn how to pray. In verse number 5, he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in, this, in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Watch now. Number one, there must be the connector if we want the power of God. Now look, if we don't want the power of God, then let's just close our Bibles and go home. If we don't want the power of God, let's stop pretending and stop singing and stop meeting and let's just shut the place down. But if we want the power of God and we know that we need the power of God and we, want, and we, we, we acknowledge uh, that only God can give us his power, then number one, there must be salvation. That's a hard wire right into our heart and that gives us power. We must be born again by believing the gospel. Number two, there must be sanctification. That is, we must be clean. When we do wrong, we confess it and forsake it. And by the way, when you confess your sin, don't bring it up to God five days after you confess it. That's right. Come on. God's not bringing it up to you five days after you confess it. Oh, you I don't know. I've been having some guilty, guilty feelings. Well, if you have guilty feelings after you've sinned and after you've confessed your sin to God honestly, that's not the Lord bringing them up. It's the devil. So when you confess your sin, you say, thank God that he's forgiven me and believe him. God feel if your child offended you and came to you and said, Daddy, please forgive me. Mommy, please forgive me. You say, thank you for being so humble. I do forgive you and it's done and I won't bring it up again. And five days later they come back and say, Daddy, please forgive me. For, for what? Did you do something? Well, yes. Remember we talked about it the other day. It's what I, what I did over the weekend. Well, we already talked about that. I already forgave you. Well, yes, I was just feeling bad and I just want you Mommy, Daddy, please forgive me. Did you do something again? Well, you're really getting into a mess. No, no, no. It's what I did 10 days ago. And that goes on and on. Wouldn't that bother you? That your child doesn't accept your forgiveness? Don't come to God 15 days and 15 times after the fact that you've confessed already and say, God, please forgive me because he has. And when he forgives, he forgets about it. He chooses not to remember it. What a great God. Amen. What a wonderful example. Amen. And so there must be sanctification. When you confess your sin, he forgives you now, forsake it and turn away. And thank God, even when we sometimes fall into the same pit, he's still faithful and just to forgive us if we'll confess. Now watch here. Third, there must be seeking. A seeking. 
Would you say it with me? There must be a seeking. Would you say it again? There must be a seeking. In this context, Jesus is talking about prayer. And he says, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. He that seeketh findeth. To him that knocketh, it shall be opened. All right, watch. He also continues in that context and says, what father, when his son asks for a piece of bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for an egg, he'll give him a scorpion. Or if he asks for a fish, he'll give him a serpent. What kind of dad is that? Of course he was saying, that's ridiculous. No good dad would do that. He said, if ye then being evil know how to give good things to them that ask him, how much more shall your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Now listen to me carefully. I understand when we speak of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit that he came down in fullness at Pentecost. I understand that Jesus has not left yet, but Jesus is laying down a principle for, and, and a pattern for us to follow. And so in Acts chapter 1, when they, they met in the upper room and they prayed, then the Holy Ghost came down. And I understand he came down to indwell. I can't understand he came down, if you will, to baptize everyone that was there. It was when the cloven tongues of fire were on each head and they spoke with power and they spoke with Holy Ghost tongues. I understand that, but hear me. There is an ongoing principle in your life and mine that if we want the power of the Holy Spirit, we must seek the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't ignore the one who has the power and expect to have the power. That's right. That's right. You've got to seek him. I believe this, Pastor. I believe that if the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ treated the Lord Jesus Christ the way Christians treat the Holy Spirit, we'd have never heard of Pentecost. Ever. We would never have seen the world turned upside down. Ever. So often we're afraid of what the Charismatics or the Pentecostals teach. And so in a pendulum swing, we run the other way in a million miles and we don't talk about the Holy Spirit. Not talking about the Holy Spirit is not the, the solution to the problem. Sometimes in our desire to avoid strange fire, which is a reality, our answer to strange fire is no fire. Can I say, no fire is not the answer. Not talking to, not talking about, not seeking the person and presence and power of the Holy Spirit is not the answer. I want to ask, when was the last time you talked to the Holy Spirit? And prayed to him and said, Holy Spirit, I can't do this today without you. You know, I can't preach without the power of the Holy Spirit, but neither can I be a good dad without it. That's right. Neither can I be a good husband without it. Neither can I be a good son without it. I desperately need the power of the Holy Spirit. I need unction from on high. Yes. And so do you. Yes. So do you. And maybe the reason that things are deteriorating in your marriage or in your home or in your parenting, young man... Hey, maybe the reason things are deteriorating in your life as a young person is because you haven't been seeking the person, the one who can give you power. It's like vacuuming up the room without plugging in the vacuum. There's a lot of energy. There's a lot of movement, but there's nothing being accomplished. Yes. You know what I pray? I pray that the people of this church, afresh and anew, will begin this year to, on a daily basis, seek the person of and power of 
the Holy Spirit of God. You know what I pray? I pray that this church will gather together in a unified way on Wednesday nights and Sundays and begin to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit because the power that God has given you in the past, he can give you in the present, and then some. We don't have fewer people to reach with the gospel. We have more people. We don't have a greater need, to, a lesser need to be seeking the power of the Holy Spirit. We have a greater need to be seeking the power of the Holy Spirit. But it won't come if we don't seek. Number three, there must be a seeking. Finally, I want you to turn to Luke 17. Excuse me, Luke 14. Luke 14. This gives us our final connector. Now again, if you don't plug it in, there will be no power. None. There will be no power. If you don't turn it on, there will be no power. None. If you don't put the battery in, there will be no power. But once you get the battery in through salvation and you get it hardwired in, you've got salvation. Then you make sure the connector of sanctification is turned on. You're seeking the Lord for purity and confessing and forsaking sin. Then you make sure that the connector of seeking the Lord is turned on and present and powerful. And now this final one. Please, can I, can I beg of you? Please don't leave me on this one. Please don't turn me off when I give you this point. Please don't get off the bus on this one. Some Christians do. Look at Luke 14. Notice what it says in verse number 32. Excuse me, verse 25. Let's get the whole context. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. What? Did you read what I just read? Great multitudes followed him. Now listen to me carefully. Listen to what I'm about to say. This is not a salvation passage. This is a discipleship passage. There is a difference between salvation and discipleship. Is it hard or simple? Complicated or simple to be saved? Complicated or simple? Simple, simple to be saved. Does Jesus make it difficult or easy to be saved? Difficult or easy? easy? Easy. Don't believe a preacher that tells you otherwise. They're not preaching Bible doctrine. That's right. This passage is not a salvation passage. It is simple to be saved. Watch this. Before you answer, don't answer. I just want you to think. Is it easy or hard to follow Christ? Is it difficult or something simple to follow Christ. It's difficult. If you have a question about that, look at verse 26. Jesus looked at these multitudes that were following him and said, If any man will come after me, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children, yea, in his own life also, his brother and sister, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, so I know what some of you young people are thinking right now. He's a preacher. I got the hate in my brother and sister part down. <laughs> that, that's not what he's talking about. You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> What's he saying? Is he saying hate? No. Relationship, terms of relationship in the Bible are terms of comparison. He's not saying hate your wife. Or hate your husband. I know you were looking for an excuse to. He's not saying that. He's saying that when you follow Christ, your love for Christ and commitment to him should be so great that when you compare your love for any other human relationship, 
to that, it should almost seem like hatred. There's such a difference. That's what he's saying. This is discipleship. Now, isn't it interesting? These multitudes were following him. A crowd. Yes. And Jesus said, uh, before you follow me, I want to lay down the rules. You've got to hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and your own life also. Your own life also is the hard part because we love ourselves. Verse number 27, he says, Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply after he hath laid the foundation is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassador and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Whoa. So what are the rules that Jesus lays down for being a follower of him? Watch. Anybody can be saved. And by the way, Jesus wants everybody to be saved. But those who are saved need to make a choice as to whether they're going to follow God and the Lord Jesus Christ or not. And that choice should be made by counting the cost. What's the cost? Well, you have to hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and yourself. You have to bear your cross. As a matter of fact, he goes so far as to say you have to forsake everything. Number four is the connection of surrender. Surrender. In other words, if I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, and I'm going to be used of him, and I'm going to be one of his disciples, it'll cost me everything. Yes, it cost every one of his disciples their lives. All of them died. You know what I believe, Pastor? I believe they died long before they died. ambition. They died to their own wants. They died to their own accomplishments and accolades. They died to criticism. They died to self. They died and took up their cross and followed him. So then when the time was come for them to physically be put on the cross, they were glad to do it. And modern American Christianity knows very little of this. This is revival truth. This is what builds and grows churches. This is what reaches generations. This is what changes cultures. This is what brings about great awakenings. No church, no culture was ever turned upside down by some cool, carnal, casual Christianity that only comes to church once a week. No culture was ever turned upside down by the kind of skinny jeans, coffee beans, and fog machine Christianity that was being pawned off on us right now. No culture was ever turned upside down by anybody, anybody less than someone that was said, Lord, I surrender all. That's what Jesus is saying in Luke 14. You know what? We'll make this church a, a church that will... Let's, let's, can we do this? Let's do this. Let's just erase the word great out of our vocabulary for a while because it's misunderstood and most of the time misapplied. 
Let's talk about impact. Would you like your church to make an impact in this community? I would. Can I say something? I thank God for this place. I've only been here for a little better than, than 36 hours and, and hardly that. But I went to the IGA today or yesterday, and I didn't know it was the IGA liquor store. I'm serious. I'm not trying to slight anybody here in Minster or Minster itself, but I was grieved when I walked in and saw one-third of the place filled with booze and alcohol. That's wicked. You know what I'd like to see? I'd like to see a church sometime that stands so firmly for the Lord Jesus Christ and wins so many people to Jesus Christ that the, that the local religions are depleted and the local liquor store has to shut down. But it's not going to happen with the kind of Christianity that is always taking and never giving everything. We're going to have to surrender. That's where most Christians get off the bus. Surrender your relationships? Yes. Surrender your dreams? Yes. Surrender your children and your grandchildren to the Lord? Yes. Surrender your bank account? Yes. Surrender your closet? Yes. Surrender your entertainment choices on Netflix? Yes. Surrender your iPod tunes? Yes. Everything. You say, I've got to give him all? Yes. What's he, what if he takes it? He will. Well, what's he going to give me instead? Something better. I was walking through a department store some time back, and there was a grandpa dealing with his grandkids. You know what he was doing? He said, I just gave you two quarters. He said, but, but I changed my mind. He said, I want, I want to give you a $5 bill. But in order for me to give you this $5 bill, you've got to give me those two quarters. And one of his grandkids was arguing with him. He said, but wait, wait. He said, this $5 bill is worth more than those two shiny quarters. And they looked at it, and they looked at him. And they said, and you know that's the way we do with the Lord sometimes. The Lord gives us blessings, and he says, now give them to me. I want to give you something better. And we hold to what is worth less in exchange for something that is worth more because we think we know better than God. Amen to that. Give it to God. You'll never regret it. I've never met someone that says, I wish I'd have gotten saved later. They'll always say, I wish I'd have gotten saved sooner. And I've never met a Christian that says, I wish I'd have surrendered later. It's been such a waste living for Jesus. I've always met Christians that have said, I wished I'd have surrendered sooner. One by one he took them from me. All the things I valued most. Until I was empty-handed, every glittering toy was lost. Then I walked earth's highway grieving in my rags and poverty till I heard his voice inviting, lift your empty hands to me. Till I heard his voice inviting, 
Lift your empty hands to me. Then I held my hands toward heaven, and he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches till they could contain no more. Then at last I comprehended with my foolish mind and dull that God could not pour his riches into hands already full. That God could not pour his riches into hands already full. Father, Father, 